0: Table Audio is made possible by the generous support of the John Templeton Foundation and the Templeton Religion Trust.
1: By our nature, we are eccentric. We're off-center. The world has its own center, fallen, lost, though many ways good. Christians have a different center. Christ is our center. And that makes us stand out if we're faithful in ways that are uh That's, that's who the saints are. The saints are the odd wads. Uh, who have stood out from society,
0: cultures, they would have been predicted to conform to. I'm Evan Rosa, and you're listening to The Table Audio, a podcast about seeking Christian wisdom for life's big questions. We are all monsters. You, me, your sweet and delicate grandma, We're monsters. Hear me out on this. We're eerily and secretly drawn to life's horrors because we're obsessed with our fears. So we write them into books and movies and really good TV these days. But of course, like any good monster flick, whether it's classics from the early days of film, Frankenstein. It's 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 alive. It's alive. It's alive. It's alive. It's alive. God, now oh, I know what it feels like to be God. Oh. King Kong.
1: Well, Denim, the airplanes got him. Oh, no. It wasn't the airplanes. It was
0: Beauty killed the beast. Beauty. The Wolf Man. Oh, I'm sick of the whole thing. I'm going to get out of here. Oh,
1: Whoever uh, is bitten by a werewolf and lives. Becomes a werewolf himself.
0: The blob. Hey, who's in
1: the store? Huh? There's nobody in here but us monsters. Hey, the theater. Godzilla. Now let's have it, Steve. What about this monster story of
0: yours? They're 80s gems like Gremlins. Has it got a name, Dad? Yeah, Mogwai i don't know some chinese word which uh yeah you guessed it mogwai means monster in cantonese alien
1: that's it man game over man it's game over the fly no be afraid be very afraid
0: and of course the most haunting and gory of them all monsters inc hey mike this might sound crazy but i don't think that kid's dangerous (laughs)
1: Abominable. <laughs> Can you believe that? Do I look abominable to you? Snow cone? <laughs> no, 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 don't worry. It's lemon. Kitty.
0: A Quiet Place. Who are we? If we can't
1: protect them, we have to protect them.
0: Or trending like Stranger Things. I'm the monster. No, no, Elle, you're not the monster. You saved me. You understand? You saved me. These stories draw something out of us. There's an intuitive draw to the monster because of the fundamental fear of ourselves. There's more, though. Etymologically and in the proper use of the word literally, literally, we are monsters insofar as we reveal. Monsters are things that display, show, and open up the truth. Monsters literally show, they demonstrate otherwise obfuscated realities. The word comes from the Latin monstro. We have religious and sacramental uses for the word too. Eucharistic Christian practices use a monstrance. It's an object presented on an altar or in a tabernacle for veneration and devotional practice. And it contains and holds the Eucharistic host as a means of revealing grace and spiritual truth. And if my guest today is also a monster, it's in that more positive usage of revealing and demonstrating beauty and goodness and truth, particularly in the world of 20th century literature. Ralph C. Wood has served as university professor of theology and literature at Baylor University since 1998 and taught at Wake Forest University prior to that. He's an expert on 19th and 20th century lit, especially at the intersection of Christianity and secularity. He's author and editor of many books and articles, including Tolkien Among Moderns, Chesterton, The Nightmare Goodness of God, Literature and Theology, Flannery O'Connor and the Christ Haunted South, The Gospel According to Tolkien, Comedy of Redemption, Christian Faith, and Comic Vision in O'Connor, Percy, Updike, and DeVries. He was kind enough to welcome me into his then two-story office filled with 7,000 books, a mezzanine level with stacks of everything. Yes, I said 7,000 books with a mezzanine level. As he puts it, it had everything from Plato to NATO, vaulted ceilings, tall windows that inspire you with the broad Texas sky above Baylor's live oak groves. Poetic, huh? Well, more than you know. I hope you enjoy this time with the wonderfully monstrous Ralph Wood. God bless him.
1: My love of books uh, didn't come up early. I was not a nerdish book reader when I was in school. I grew up on a horse <laughs> in eastern Texas, so the moment school was out in the afternoon, I was uh, on horseback. And I'm thankful for that, because I've got a real acquaintance with the animal world and and living out in the countryside and, and uh, riding aboard, a, 1200 pounds of horse flesh at full speed, bareback is one of life's great pleasures. I began to be a reader only in college, but only because I had really, really good teachers. I saw that English was the major I should be headed toward because there was where the thought was occurring on my little campus in Eastern Texas. There, say, the the best thinkers on campus were also English profs. And had the great good fortune of having a Roman Catholic teacher in a little school where he was the only Catholic member of the faculty. But through him, I began to love books, began to read them and not simply as aesthetic objects or instances of this or that cultural pattern, but for their impingement upon the moral life and the religious life. He never used them as pretext for sermonizing or attitudinizing, but it was pretty clear if you read those texts deeply, your life is gonna be transformed by them. And so I began to read and to want to read more and have been doing so ever since. So, to quote the psalmist, the lines of my life have fallen in pleasant places, this being one of the most pleasant.
0: We live in an era where reading is under threat, or at least people like to complain about that. But Ralph points out that we are, in fact, always reading. It's the subject matter, substance, and depth of content of the words. That's what's in question. As a man of literature, Ralph talks about the importance of developing the readerly trait of sustained imaginative sympathy. It's an attitude or disposition of one's intellectual character. The ability to pay close attention, to follow a plot or argument, to appreciate the unending complexity of life, ideas, and human experience. But you might also consider it the purpose or telos of a good reader. At least one expression of that purpose. A good reader has sustained imaginative sympathy. Well, how to form ourselves and our children into better readers, then. The first recommendation is simply
1: <laughs> to become a reader as such. You may remember Alistair Cook was the host for Mystery Theater on uh, PBS for years and years, a British immigrant. He said, frighteningly, that by the end of this 21st century, Reading will be as quaint as hand quilting, a kind of strange hobby that a very few people will pursue. Now, I've learned to be careful about that kind of doomsday prediction because my students are reading all the time. But they're reading messages that can be contained in 42 characters. They're reading tweets. And therefore they are losing the capacity, if they ever had it, of what I would call sustained imaginative sympathy, or simply the the power to follow a complex argument, a complex plot. And the first way to overcome that is to turn off the iPhone, to get rid of background noise, to run off your roommate if roommate chatters, and learn to dwell in solitude. Reading is a solitary act. That isn't always. You can have reading groups, of course. Couples often read to each other, parents read to children, but on um, the whole, reading is uh, something one does in one's aloneness. So that's the first thing just to become readers. So journalism is a good place to begin. You know, read a good newspaper. And by that I mean one that has not only the content of the world's Major happenings, but it's written at a level of high literary excellence. And New York Times, for example, is one of those. So, begin with that and go from there to good journals. Atlantic, for example, Harper's, for example, Criterion, for example, on the list goes. The New Criterion is now called. So one begins, I think at the level of serious journalism, where one becomes aware of the world of books and ideas and the imagination, and thereby one can ease into uh, other kind of reading. For example, I'm teaching C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters right now, and my students, of course, can really devour it. because they are already on the same page with me. But I've had the experience in teaching that book in certain churches where lay people, I don't mean mentally, limited lay people. I remember, for example, a dentist saying, I just cannot read this stuff. It is too complex for me. What he really meant was, I am used to dealing in things that have obvious and direct and immediate conclusions. Is there a cavity in that tooth when I look at it on an X-ray? Well, he's been trained, of course, very sophisticated, but he can't transfer that unimaginative world where you have to create images for yourself. In your own mind, he can't transfer from that world to the world of, of books, and above all, imaginative books. So there's nothing wrong with beginning with children's books. Some of the best, you know, Wind of the Willows is a very great book, The Velveteen Rabbit. It's a book that adults can read. The Hobbit is a book that one can begin with in reading Tolkien, the Narnia Chronicle, for example. So don't be convinced you have to begin at the top, begin at the bottom, begin like a little child as one shall lead them. And then of course go from there to Lewis's more complex works to Tolkien's more complex work. And above all, learn to read poetry. Poetry was once, I'm sure you know, the common pastime of every educated person. It's now most entirely lost. So I'm concerned to teach my students how to read poetry. It's not difficult. You simply learn the basic scansions. You learn the meaning of metaphor and simile. Um, you learn what accent and stress is. You learn the patterns of rhyme and meter. Learn the poetic forms. Once you learn that, then you'll find poetry in some ways more attractive than prose because it's the highest of literary forms. And poetry was, of course, once sung. And our hymns still, of course, sing poetry. And that's a good way, by the way, to become a reader of a serious kind, and that is to think about the hymns that you're singing if you're lucky enough to be in a church that sings the great hymns and are not a victim of what I call the holy overhead projector which flashes onto the screen, banal trivialities that don't engender imaginative life. If you sing, uh, Love Divine, All Love's Excelling, Joy from Heaven to Earth Come Down, and Wesley's other great hymns, or you sing When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, maybe the greatest hymn in the Christian tradition, and think about what Isaac Watts is saying there, go to Watts' other hymns then you will have an imaginative life already born in the church's own worship so that your, your life will be enriched by singing poetry and fathoming poetry
0: uh, i've heard this attributed to many authors but at the very least tolkien um and uh, maurice sendak and more recently neil gaiman um saying there's no such thing as books for children per se there's just uh books for people that's right any book that truly engages a child's mind
1: also engage in adult D.H. Lawrence for example wrote very great children's poetry most people don't know it and so I go and read it (laughs) it's excellent it's excellent
0: Ralph Wood has spent most of his career working on the so-called Catholic writers of the 20th century usually referring to a short list of British and American writers many of them converts to Christianity from modern secularism You've got G.K. Chesterton, J.R.R. Tolkien, Graham Greene, Flannery O'Connor, Muriel Spark, Walker Percy, Eudora Welty, even John Kennedy Toole, author of the hilarious and insane Confederacy of Dunces. These authors have exerted unusual force of influence over 20th century narrative fiction, and as a result, we find the echoes of their imagination everywhere. But they're also full of downright odd, ridiculous, and sometimes grotesque and gothic characters— Take Ignatius J. Riley of Confederacy of Dunces. Walker Percy described this hot dog-eating, bus-riding, movie-going maniac as, quote, slob extraordinary, a mad Oliver Hardy, a fat Don Quixote, a perverse Thomas Aquinas rolled into one, end quote. Or to use an old Russian Orthodox monastic category, he's a holy fool, so utterly weird and out of place. You start to wonder... Who's seen the world right? This glaring oddball or the world around him who so easily recoils and rejects him and receives him not? I asked Ralph about what we can learn from the Catholic writers he so intimately knows and studies. He started by pointing out that until the 20th century, most American writers were more children of enlightenment and modern American individualism than they were of Christianity.
1: Yeah, that's a superb question. What is there about Catholic writers that makes them so good? Why are there so many more of them than Protestant writers of an eminent kind? I'd like to point out that prior to Flannery O'Connor, this nation, which Chesterton famously defined as a nation with the soul of a church, had produced no really major Christian writer. All of our writers have been on the edge of Christianity, often having to be much more critical of it, than in any sense seeking to embody me. Think of Hawthorne, Melville, Twain, Poe, Emerson, Emily Dickinson, Henry James, all of those figures are great writers. We now have an American tradition equal in some ways to to the British, at least in the modern period. But they're all having to stand at a critical distance from Christianity because I argue, in an essay I've written with Stanley Harwas, the church in America has been so closely allied with the project of the nation that the two really had no great distance critically between them so that whatever the state did the church largely endorsed. Now that of course came apart at the time of the Civil War and it, of course increasingly come apart in, uh, in our time. Catholics by contrast have had the advantage of being outsiders. You know, this has not been a a Catholic country. It's been a Protestant country. And and what is more, an Enlightenment Protestant country. Catholics have thus had the advantage, oddly enough, of being on the periphery of American culture and not being at the center. But more than that, this is the term I like for my students to get hold of. Catholics have a tremendous advantage over us Protestants in having at the core of Catholic faith and worship, the sacramental imagination. Now, that's a a large and can be very woolly term, easily misused, but at its core it means that just as in the Eucharist, this broken bread is Christ's broken body, and just as in the cup poured out for our salvation, that wine is Christ's spilt blood once you say that and thus believe in the real presence in the Eucharist once you say that baptism is not simply my profession of faith made public to the world but the church's gift to us so that we are thereby incorporated into the body of Christ by being buried in a very watery grave being raised up in the newness of life Once you come to worship and behave and think and act sacramentally, the world itself is a book of analogies. And of course, Scripture itself becomes immensely enriched. Scripture is never to be read merely literally, but with all of its spiritual and allegorical and moral um, uh, depth of meaning. And so Uh, I'm glad to see that in our time, (coughs) evangelicals are recovering that sacrament. Sacramental imagination. Because without it, we're doomed. It, what we get is a very barren kind of thing that leads to the praise songs. I mean, quite honestly, look how bad much art is in the evangelical world. Uh, look at the way many of our churches evoke no sense of reverence whatsoever, whatsoever. Because it's just a preaching barn, many Protestant churches are. So the Catholics have this sacramental imagination that that imbues their architecture, their art, their music, their liturgy, and not least of all, their literature. Hence the great productivity of Catholic tradition in my work uh, for literary purposes.
0: Stay tuned. After the break, Ralph Wood unveils even more on Monsters, but also the hope we have of waking from our worst nightmares. Hello, friends. Thanks for giving us a place at your table. It's a gift for us to bring these conversations into your life, and we hope you find them meaningful and memorable. Throughout season three of the podcast, we'll be offering a brand new online course. It's free to all of our email newsletter subscribers and free to sign up. It's called Charting a Course Through Grief, and it's all about providing much needed perspectives on dealing with the pain of loss. This stuff isn't easy to talk about, but we need to. Not far beneath the shiny facade of the smiley, how you doing I'm fine version of American happiness. We all know that darkness, that loneliness, and the real pain is there. This course doesn't take the place of counseling, therapy, or healing of loving encounters with God, friends, and family. But there are words beautiful words and ideas and stories that provide for us companions for our journeys of grief and it's right in line with our goal to continue to seek christian wisdom for life's biggest questions so we've curated an email-based course that brings a weekly variety of perspectives on depression disability disease and death bringing christian resources for healing and growth within and through and despite these painful events of life we're developing new content dusting off old content as well as providing helpful resources and references for continued education and exploration charting a course through grief is totally free so head over to cct.biola.edu grief and sign up today we don't see eye to eye on everything but all of us will someday encounter deep personal suffering so here's an opportunity for us to learn pray meditate and open up to the opportunities for growth in the face of suffering Check out the link and description in the show notes, or head over to our website to sign up. Again, that's cct.biola.edu/slash grief. And of course, thanks for listening to the table audio. Now back to our conversation. The monstrosity we find in the 20th century Catholic writers is often alarming and grotesque. It's not cleansed, scrubbed, edited, or whitewashed. Think of Tolkien's orcs and the brutality of dominion gone wrong. Or think of O'Connor's Backwoods Prophets, their wicked recipients of grace, or the misfit of A Good Man is Hard to Find and his admission that, quote, Jesus has thrown everything off balance. Walker Percy's expression of unknown and unrevealed monstrosity in his wonderful Lost in the Cosmos, Graham Greene's exploration of fear and brutality, and of course, The context for all of this is that they are writing in the trenches of likely the bloodiest century in the history of the world. It's impossible to get a precise number, but historians estimate somewhere between 167 million and 225 million people died from some form of collective violence in the 20th century alone. As these authors wrote into their fictional characters a certain monstrosity, some of it was grotesque by a kind of need for fit to the darkness and ashes that have covered the 20th century. You might compare maybe the ultimate monster flick, Godzilla, originally Gojira in Japanese. Gojira is actually a Japanese portmanteau of words for gorilla and whale. It's uh, like a biblical Leviathan. Made in post-war Japan in 1954, Godzilla is a creature that emerges from the murky, radioactive Pacific Ocean in the aftermath of our own nuclear experimentation and the utter destruction of the atomic bomb. The monster is a horror of humanity's own making. Maybe we're ultimately most afraid of ourselves and each other. But the additive grace of that monstrosity is that not all that is monstrous is evil. So the Christian sacramental imagination of a writer, full as it is with that same sustained imaginative sympathy from earlier, reveals also what goodness might emerge from the nightmare.
1: Yeah, what can we learn from these important writers who in their differing ways... Chesterton, O'Connor, Percy want to envision our humanity as monstrous in the deepest sense of that word. And of course, it has as its basic premise that we are not simply creatures of nature. We're not simply animals. We're animals with a difference. Animals in general don't have nervous breakdowns. Animals don't smoke or drink. <laughs> uh, animals uh, don't, they can play, but they can't tell jokes. They can, they can kind of, they can be happy, but not at the depth or the level of human beings. So human beings, by being made in God's image, our basic Christian doctrine of, uh, of our humanity, means that we're meant to be not creatures who have found ourselves at home in a habitat you know my cat is very happy when he's well fed and he has a warm place to sleep and a warm lap to nap in we're not happy when those things happen they can be they can be ornaments to our happiness but our happiness has to be more than any kind of hap- animal happiness so that there is, because of our fallen, refusal to find our happiness in God, to know Him and enjoy Him forever, and therefore to know our neighbors and enjoy them forever. We've fallen away from that basic command given to us at the beginning. Uh, We're a profoundly unhappy creature. Uh, We are creatures who are miserable. We are in the condition of sin. We are lost. We're wandering. We're astray. We're alienated. And that makes us monstrous. <laughs> and it makes us monstrous even when we, we look well-dressed, well-coiffed, uh, well-adjusted, uh, successful, in all the terms the world can measure those things by. There's a secret ache at the core of our human condition because we're fallen. And of course that ache is as Augustine defined it in the fourth century. Our hearts are restless because they're meant to rest in God but have become unquiet in alienation from God. So that's enough to make us into monstrous uh, characters who've done monstrous things. As we were saying earlier, this is the age of, um, of ashes, uh, of, of both the, the Nazi furnaces, and of the Gulag, and of the Chinese work camps, and of Milai Lai, and of not least of all, Hiroshima, Nagasaki, Dresden, the ashes we, good guys, created. And not to depict man, therefore, as a monster is to be unfaithful to what is. And so these writers are all dealing with human depravity in in ways that you can't miss. However, anybody can describe human misery. You know, you can simply go with your camera uh, into any inner city and start photographing all the street people and the um, the. Uh, people who are addicted to all kinds of drugs who have who talk to themselves all the time uh etc anybody can do that christians christian writers want to do that however by showing that that monstrosity has another side because monstrous comes from the latin root mostro which means to show or display in a way that makes things stand out And so we are creatures who are meant to stand out from the merely natural order. Uh, The word anthropos, the Greek word for for human means the upward-looking one. We're the only animal that doesn't stare down at the ground. We don't derive our being from the earth, but from what is in the earth that pulls us beyond the earth. So a truly Christian art, whether it be poetry, fiction, drama, you name it, is going to always have hints that this evil monstrosity is supposed to issue in a kind of good monstrosity. Uh, I like to quote Flannery O'Connor, though no one's been able to trace down this quote. She does a wonderful riff on John's Gospel when she says, You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you odd. <laughs> So I like to tell students, we're odd wads. You know, by nature, I like George Limbeck saying, by our nature, we are eccentric. We're off-center. The world has its own center, fallen, lost, though many ways good. Christians have a different center. Christ is our center. And that makes us stand out if we're faithful in ways that are that are odd. That's, that's who the saints are. The saints are the odd wads. Uh, who have stood out from society cultures they would have been predicted to conform to, and so all the writers that I deal with have that other vision of man, the good monster, and not simply the evil monster. So Flannery O'Connor's uh, fiction is grotesque. That's her favorite word, but it's grotesque because she says I regard these strange backwoods prophets. These unordained, unwashed, self-taught uh, preachers as my heroes, because they're onto that which the modern world would like to forget: God, the kingdom of God, Christ. She has a uh, character said, "I don't preach nothing but Christ and him nailed." <laughs> That's a wonderful you know paraphrase of Paul. So they all do that in, in radically different ways. Uh, Chesterton does it by trying to the happy, glorious, uh, wondrous comedy of human existence. And he has a, uh, an aphorism you may know. He says, um, um, seriousness is the most natural thing. He says it flows out of us like water from a fetid pool. Laughter, he says, by contrast, is a leap. It requires us to jump out of our animal condition and our fallen condition into the transcendent world of God's own presence. And so his splendid aphorism is this. He says, um, Satan, therefore, fell by his gravity. (laughs) Not just his Newtonian weight, of which he had none, but has his super seriousness. Sin, at its core, is taking ourselves too seriously, believing that the world's centers around us, focusing our lives on ourselves. And then he adds this splendid um, um, a kind of codicil to that will. And the unfallen angels still fly because they take themselves so lightly. So Chesterton's fiction has about it that wonderful lightness, comedy, paradox of the Christian faith. And he defines paradox wonderfully as paradox, he says, is truth standing on its head and waving its legs to get our attention. <laughs> it's truth upside down. And of course, that's what the kingdom is. It's, the kingdom is the world turned upside down. But what many people have missed in Chesterton and what I try to recover in my recent book on him is the dark side. A lot of people can dismiss him. Oh, he's just the jokester. He's God's big, fat clown. Um, And we don't have to take him seriously. But I began to look and I began to see that the single trope, the governing metaphor that occurs throughout Chesterton is nightmare. And, of course, nightmare is an encounter with horror. Um, It's to be wakened in the middle of the night screaming. It is to have visions of a world coming apart. Um, And it, of course, has the image of being hag-ridden, of of being uh, being preyed upon by um, witches whether of the male or female variety. And what he does in his best fiction is to confront us with that nightmare horror, especially in his best work, most difficult but still most important, Uh, The Man Called Thursday, and I devote a whole chapter to that. So what I'm trying to do in that book is to help Christians, by the way, of the kind you described, the the thoughtful Christian layperson. By the way, I'm a layperson. I'm not ordained. I say people, I haven't found anybody willing to lay hands on me. (laughs) What he does, what's happened in the past is you get what I call the Chestertonian acolytes, those who think he never thought, said, or did one thing bad. And thus, want to create out of him what I think is clearly an idol, but on the other hand, his, what I call his culture despisers those who think he was just, uh, you know, a guy who came out with a clever quip every time he had to face a difficulty. And I try to show neither side has it right? Both sides uh, need, therefore, to see the way in which he must be taken seriously and not either canonized as a, a, a pseudo-saint nor vilified as a stupid Christian villain.
0: Yeah. Let's go from the nightmare um, to the morning. You, You gave your book on Chesterton the title, The Nightmare Goodness of God. Is there any hope of waking up from this nightmare? You're asking again,
1: what is the goodness inherent in the nightmare? Because nightmare is by definition that which you don't want to have. The goodness is, of course, that the nightmare is not finally real. And he, of course, there is a, Chesterton is a thoroughgoing Augustinian who understands that evil is the privation of the good, the absence of the good, the twisting and perversion of the good. And so in the deepest sense, doesn't truly exist. It does horrors, of course, in the world because it can assume all kinds of demonic and destructive forms. But the only thing that finally exists is the goodness of God. Um And he shows that forth in a variety of unusual ways that give us hope. And in the work I think that will last, perhaps as um, his most important poem for sure, is called "The Ballad of the White Horse." And I would like to read what is the, um, the, the light motif that runs through this um, epic poem. Uh, about a battle that King Alfred fought against the invading Danes in the, I forget, 9th, 10th centuries. And this is the word that comes from a vision he has of um, the Virgin Mary. And she says to him, I tell you, naught for your comfort, yea, naught for your desire, save that the sky grows darker yet and the sea rises higher. Night, shall be thrice night over you, and heaven and iron cope. Do you have joy without a cause, yea, faith without a hope?" Now that's a, that's a deep and very dark paradox where the Blessed Virgin is saying to King Alfred that things are going to get worse. The tide will rise higher, the world will grow darker. And, of course, Chesterton died in 1936. He saw the world growing rapidly darker as Hitler had already risen to power. Thank God he didn't see the real darkness. So Christians don't live on the the hope that things are going to get better. If we live by that hope, we might quote St. Paul, we are of all men most hopeless. Things are not going to get better. The trajectory of history is not upward, onward, progressive. But always an undulating hope followed by loss of hope, followed by new hope, etc., until, of course, finally the end comes, where there shall be what St. Paul calls hope beyond hope. So the hope held out by these writers is precisely that Pauline hope, that when earthly hopes fail, as they are inevitably will, we're all going to die, As Mark Twain famously said, life is a losing proposition. (laughs) Uh, How do we live in the meantime? How do we live in the meantime? And we live with that hope that lies beyond what Tolkien calls the walls of the world. The hope that draws us forward because death has already been conquered. The cross has already defeated the devil. But of course, Karl Barth says the devil has this awful remaining power as he thrashes his horrible dragon tail back and across the face of history. Barth likens it, for example, to a clock that in its pendulum swing from one extreme to the other, finally makes its last forward movement and then slowly and gradually swings less and less to a final halt. We're living in that time, he says, between the final talk of history, which came in the resurrection, and the final conclusion, which of course is in the parousia, the return. But we live in that time, not in, on the one hand, desperation, that makes us do terribly evil things, answering evil with evil, but neither do we live in the false complacency oh well it will all turn out in the end i don't have to worry about resisting evil much less doing good that's the kind of hope all all of these writers o'connor percy c s lewis chesterton all hold out in very different ways admittedly but that as i see it is the basically christian vision that they all um subscribed to, but by way of Christian tradition. That's what's so important. Those are all Catholics, every one of those, except Lewis, who was an Anglo-Catholic. They have that sacramental imagination that can discern the signs of the times, that can read into historical events and can read natural occurrences, can read physical objects as never meaning one thing and one thing only, but having a variety of meanings both good and ill, and, and, and ill. Yeah. And now to avoid the questions, you know, my best teachers were those who really pushed my nose into the cold snows of modern horror, that's my point. Unless you face the horror, that's what the cross is. <laughs> the ultimately horrible event that we call, as Eliot says, Good Friday, <laughs> because God made it good not only in the resurrection, but of course in calling us to live out the life of the cross, being willing to die without earthly hope, but in the confidence of hope beyond hope.
0: Life, all of human kind, may our hearts greet the dawn of light with charity. And love. The table audio is hosted and produced by me, Evan Rosa and is a resource of the Bio University Center for Christian Thought, which is sponsored by generous grants from the John Templeton Foundation, Templeton Religion Trust, and the Blankenmeyer Foundation. Theme music is by The Brilliance. Additional scoring in this episode by Una and The Sound. Production and engineering by the Narrativo Group. More at narrativogroup.com. Edited and mixed by TJ Hester. To subscribe to The Table Audio, check us out on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you like this episode, please share it. It also really helps when podcast fans rate and review their favorite podcasts. So give us an honest one in Apple Podcasts. Thanks. On Twitter, you can follow me at Evan Subrosa, and you can follow the Center for Christian Thought at Biola CCT, or visit our website, cct.biola.edu.